Thanks, Herb. If you are between the ages of four and the second grade, you are excused to Kids Club. I'm still trying to talk Pearson to coming up here and preaching some Sunday so I can go to Kids Club. He hadn't given in to it yet. Well, we are walking through what is a 13-week series in the book of Ephesians. We are 12 weeks in, and as we've walked through this series called Rooted in the Gospel, we've wanted to look at what does it look like for a gospel life? What does it look like for someone to live out the life of the gospel? And as we walked through the first three chapters of Ephesians, we looked at it. We looked at what does it mean for the gospel to be well-rooted in us? What does it look like for us to walk with an understanding of the gospel implications? What does it look like for us to understand that it's by grace that we have been saved and not of our own merit? What does it look like for us not to deny our depravity, but rather to accept that we struggle with sin, but to accept that God's grace is even more abounding than that? What does it look like for us to walk with a gospel identity? And as we've worked into the second half of this book, we're looking at different aspects of how the gospel then informs our lives. And four one, we said there's a calling that we'd walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And four seventeen, there's a no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And then in five one, therefore be imitators of God. Now, in the last couple of weeks, we've walked into some much more practical implications. Two weeks ago, we looked at what does that look like in marriage. What what does the gospel, what does a gospel identity look like, live like, work itself out like in marriage? How does it inform our married lives? And last week we looked at parenting. How does it look like for us to engage our children with a, a gospel import where we're living out the gospel? Now, I need to be honest with you as we've walked through this. uh, I feel like I need to at least acknowledge the fact that we're teaching straight from the Bible. We're using this as our authority. We've not intended to teach a section on marriage or a section on, that wasn't comprehensive by any measure, nor is parenting. So if you came through that and you had some tension about that, that didn't sit with you well, that's that's okay. There are principles that that shows us what, but the reality is that life is not always that clean, uh, there are m- many, many, many more struggles within those situations. I've had an opportunity to talk to a lot of folks, but the idea for us is to just deal with the tensions of those passages and to live out the implications. So this week, we're going to take another step into your business. Several people joke with me that I've been meddling too much, um, so I'm meddling some more. We've, we've talked about your marriage, we've talked about your family, so let's now talk about your work. As we've turned into chapter 6, um, there, there's a message here about work. And for us to get to work, the first thing we really have to acknowledge is that we need to develop a biblical theology of work before we even open the text. Uh, we need to have an understanding of work and why that's important. The first thing we really have to appreciate is that as we've worked through Ephesians, Ephesians has well laid out for us an identity. And our identity laid out in the book of Ephesians is Jesus Christ. Now why that sets us up to talk about work so significantly well is because if our identity is in Jesus Christ, then our identity cannot be our work. 
See, for too many of us, we identify ourselves solely and completely by what we do. And when we find our significance in that, we set ourselves up for destruction. Because when we're significant in that, when we look at this thing that we do, that we identify ourselves by, that is not Jesus Christ, when we do awesome at it, we're like, man, I am amazing. People should know how great I am. I think that's why they invented Twitter. So people could tell each other how great they are. But the converse of that is also true. When things start falling apart, when they don't work out the way you want them to, all of a sudden, you have no identity. You find yourself worthless. You find yourself without a, an anchor, without a stability. We need to have a biblical theology of work that at least initially identifies that work cannot be our identification. Our identity has to be Jesus. We need to have an understanding that a theology of work starts with one idea. Work is worship. Let me develop that for you in Genesis. It's the first book in your Bible. If you opened it up and just turned over a couple pages, you'd get there. Genesis 2 says this, And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, a significant thing about Genesis 2, and I think most of you will have picked up with this, is it doesn't take a whole lot of biblical hermeneutical skills to determine that Genesis 2 comes before Genesis 3. That's kind of a a genius Bible move right there. And Genesis 3 is the fall. So if you find work given to man prior to the fall, you actually find work as a significant part of paradise. Now that's an extraordinary thing for us to grab onto initially. Is to say that had man never sinned, we'd still work. God saw that as holy. And in fact, this word that's used for work in Genesis 2 can literally be translated as service rendered to God. So as Adam set out to work, he understood that what he was doing as he approached a field was he was offering worship to God while working. And that was always God's design and plan. And when sin entered the world, we stopped giving it that designation. We stopped seeing it as worship. We stopped seeing it as an opportunity for us to go and do something as unto the Lord. And we started making it our identity. And when we make it our identity, we make it about us. And when we make it our identity, we make it about us. We make the money, that's about us too. And the title, that's about us. And our advancement, us. And you see the problem. That was never intended to be how it is. Work existed before the fall, before sin. Work was given to us, and it was given to us as a holy calling. And when we appreciate work as a holy calling, which we have to, we have to. Because the other dichotomy that starts to set up with work is that some of you will see what I do as a holy calling, and what you do is not a holy calling. That's the other place we miss it. Because if what I do as a pastor is work and is worship and all that, you see that connection. 
But when you go to XYZ company and you build widgets, you have a harder time connecting that. But for us to understand that a holy God places us wherever he does, very purposefully, very meaningfully, for a purpose. So whatever God has called you to do is your calling. And you were called to work. And it is a holy thing. And it's worship. So let's turn into Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, 5 starts this way. Bond servants. I'm going to get one word in and we're stopping. Bond servants. There are three things we got to say about this word. Douloi. It's a Greek term. Bond servants. One, we got to initially deal with the fact that verses 5 through 9 specifically address slaves and masters. So we have to talk about slavery. So let's spend a couple minutes, just a couple of brief minutes talking about this, and then we'll develop it as we move. The first thing we have to say is, the Bible mentioning slavery, does the Bible support slavery? We just have to talk about that, just for a moment, apologetically. Philosophically, this is an extraordinarily weak argument, just so you know. If anyone ever comes to you and says, is this, does the Bible support slavery? Just to mention something or to tell somebody how to relate within a context does not actually support it. It, it, it is informing somebody now in the context of where you are, how you should live out the gospel, doesn't tell you that it's supporting slavery. It, it's telling you that this was written in a context where slavery is much different than we've ever understood it. And he's writing to people to tell them to, to honor and to represent Jesus. So let's consider what slavery looked like in this context. I'll give you eight differences. The first, that race played no significant role. When you look at ancient slavery, you realize that ancient slavery not only was the major economic model of the time, it was also the only means of advancement. That if you were from a, a poor family, you had no means, you might sell yourself into another family to take care of you. You might sell yourself into another family so you could learn a skill, you could learn a craft, you could learn a trade. It's radically different than the perception of slavery we have in the West. Slavery in the old world, education was encouraged. Slaves served in very important, sensitive positions. Only people could sell themselves into slavery. Number five, slaves could control property. They could own other property, including slaves. Slick, six, slave culture were those of the free. And it's the same culture. They walked in and out. There were, they weren't excluded from things. Seven, public meetings were allowed. And eight, the majority of urban and domestic slavery would be freed at some point. So we walk through this. The first thing we have to acknowledge is that it does talk about slavery. We'd actually be a little ignorant not to talk about that for just a moment. And then we'd also be a little ignorant not to at least acknowledge that slavery still exists. It's not really hard to look into the world to see that slavery still exists. In fact, more and more over the last 10 years have people really tried to raise a banner to say that people all over the world are in slavery. In fact, I think the statistic that he'll put up will say 10 to 30 million 
but they're saying 27.8 million people in the world right now are still in slavery. Now, a lot of times we raise that up as human trafficking sex slavery. A lot of times you see children working in India building bricks. A lot of times it's, it's posited a lot of different ways. But I wanted to show you two other things, two websites just for you to be aware of as we move through this quickly. One of which is slaveryfootprint.org. Slaveryfootprint.org is a fascinating website. If at some point you'll go there, you'll type it in, it'll start asking you questions. It'll ask you about 10 to 15 demographic questions about you, and it will tell you the impact of slavery in your life. It'll blow your mind because you'll start to realize the companies that you support that are rooted essentially in nature have slavery at their heart where they're mining something in Africa that's taking advantage of people, or they're producing something in India that's taking advantage of people. And you find that there are so many products that we all use that fall into that. But it's just a tool for us to be aware that it still exists and try to avoid the companies that participate in it. The second website I gave you was the polarisproject.org Polaris is an organization in the United States that fights human trafficking, but more or less tries to connect different organizations. So if in the midst, thanks for showing the actual websites. In the midst of this, you find interest in that, you want to know more about it, I'd love to talk to you about human trafficking. I've had some very interesting experiences with it over the years, um, but there's places you can learn more about what modern slavery looks like. So if we walk into this passage, we, we have to acknowledge that it's, it, it's talking to the context of slavery. We have to acknowledge that slavery in this context was different than what we have to understand. We have to acknowledge that slavery still exists. And then we also have to acknowledge that slavery in the, in the old world was the common economic model and the only way of advancement. And so the principles that line up here are the same principles that will line up for us. That if we want to walk into our workplace and engage our workplace with the gospel, there are going to be some principles here that we've got to grab onto. If we really want to, to live a life that is not like the Gentiles, but rather imitates and reflects God in our workplace, what are those principles? What does a gospel-centered life, what does a gospel-rooted life look like Monday through Friday, 8 to 5? Because the reality of this is that the church has for too long thought that if I wore a cross or a, the Lord's Gym t-shirt, that was significant enough for me to reach people. We need more than that. We need more than that. Because somewhere in this, you have to appreciate when you show up at your job, these people see you all the time. They see you all the time. They, they know your strengths. They know your weaknesses. And, and so just to be able to say, man, the Lord loves you is significant. It's so significant. And we've got to be able to put words on the gospel. But we also have to put a life on the gospel. And that's what we need to look at this morning. What does it look like to put a life on the gospel when we go to work? So in Ephesians 6, 5, it says bondservants, douloi. Interesting to note that this is the same word that Paul applies to himself in relation to Jesus Christ. 
that he understood himself as a slave to Jesus so that wherever he went, wherever he went, he served Jesus all the time. It's the same understanding we need to have. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. So let's put that in our, our context. Employees, obey your boss with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. That if you're wanting to represent Jesus Christ in your workplace, that some of the principles you initially have to grab onto is how do you treat your boss? Because how you treat your boss will absolutely impact what your coworkers think of you. How you orient yourself, how you talk about this person, how you engage them, how you deal with authority is going to testify to your coworkers what you believe. So if it tells you to, to respond with fear and trembling, let's talk about those terms. Our first principle with fear. The idea here is that you'd be respectful, that you'd show reverence, that you would honor this person. It comes back to an earlier series we did this summer when we talked about the fact that when we engage people, we honor them because they have souls. They need Jesus. So we're going to honor somebody, not for what they do, not because they've got a title, but because they've got a soul. We're going to show reverence to them. We're going to honor their position. And that's got to impact how we talk to them. You cannot expect to smart aleck your boss and win him to Jesus. We also have to be careful how we talk about them. Because you can't engage your coworkers meaningfully for Jesus while trashing your boss in the workroom. It's inconsistent. Fear and trembling. The idea in trembling is our second principle that we would be careful, that we would be prudent, that we wouldn't make mistakes. That as much as we're going to engage this guy and try to respect him, we're going to try to work hard so that we don't make errors. So that our work is bringing honor and glory to God. And that's the next place we're going to, it's one of the next places we're going to. The third one is with a sincere heart. That as you go to work and you're wanting to honor your boss and honor your employees, you're going to do so without hypocrisy or without duplicity. We don't say one thing to a person and, and then say something else to somebody else because the people watch our hypocrisy and it puts a bad taste. Don't forget, friends, as we've walked through this, we've seen that Jesus is doing something unique. He's creating his church to reflect his glory so that the rest of the world can look and see what he's like. He's creating marriages that are different, that reflect his glory. He's creating parenting that's different, that will reflect his glory. Now he's wanting to challenge you that you'd be a different worker so that you'd reflect his glory at your workplace. You'd be sincere. The fourth part of that, as you would Christ. 
That the same way that when Adam worked in the garden, that his work was service rendered unto the Lord, is the same heart, the same attitude we have to take with our workplaces. To understand that when we go Monday through Friday, 8 to 5, whatever we do, we're not just trying to make a paycheck, and we're not trying to just make some guy down the hall money, and we're not trying to get stock options, and we're not trying to make sure we can pay our insurance and our, and our other benefits. We're, we're literally doing work as unto the Lord. We're rendering ourselves worship. If we walk through Genesis, we can look at it. We can see that God in his nature was a creator. He was a builder. He was a craftsman. He created the whole world. And he took exquisite pride in what he did. He stopped along the way to say, it was good. It's that same kind of heart and idea for us that we would approach our work with that same heart to say we want to work as unto the Lord. That what we do is worship. And it doesn't matter at what level you're doing that at. If you're raking leaves or picking up trash or, or putting together spreadsheets or hiring and firing people or I don't know what it is. To understand that whatever that looks like for you, that you do it unto the Lord. That it's worship. Verse 6. Not by the way of eye service. You have to dig into that one a little bit. The idea of not by the way of eye service is the idea that I could watch you and see what you're doing and I'd be able to testify to it. But if I don't do it by the way of eye service, that means how do you act when nobody's watching you? So the principle that comes here is that you would be consistent whether people are watching you or not, so that your work ethic, your work practice is consistent whether anyone's around you or not. If your boss is standing over your shoulder and you're working hard, awesome. When he walks away, do you work just as hard? See, this is service rendered unto the Lord. That's the whole heart of this passage. With a good will as to the Lord and not to man. That as we work, that our attitude towards our employers and our bosses and our companies is with an attitude of good will. We want them to be successful. Reading through that this week, it took me into the latter part of Genesis 37, 38, 39. You read the book, story of Joseph, you want to see this lived out well. You see a guy that was plucked from his family, became a slave, very fitting, was thrown into jail, worked so hard in jail that everyone looked at that guy and said, the Lord is with him. And they put him in charge of stuff. He gets out of jail, ends up in Potiphar's house, ends up in charge of Potiphar's house. It just keeps going on. You see a man who works like this with an attitude of goodwill. Now there's seven principles that fall in verses five and six that if we engage our bosses with respect, with carefulness, with sincerity, service rendered unto the Lord, and that we're consistent with proper motives and an attitude of goodwill, 
you got to initially appreciate that there's a lot here, that that's really hard and challenging. This is again where i got to remind you that the heart of the gospel is not to have a list or a checklist of right or wrongs. If you walk out of here with a checklist of seven things and say, if I don't do this, I've dishonored Jesus, you miss the point. What this is trying to do for us is give us marks and achievements, things to look at, things to hope for, things to strive for, so as we work out the gospel in our lives and we're trying to have an influence for Jesus Christ in our workplaces, this is how we do it. You might pick one of them. Say, this week I want to work and be much more respectful to my coworkers. I want to be so mindful about how I talk to them and how I talk about them. Because I want to make a difference here. It's, it's about living out the glory of Jesus Christ through us all the time, everywhere. And for us to adequately preach that, we got a medal. We got a medal. Because it's got to affect our families. And it's got to affect our workplaces. Church, you have to appreciate that too many of us, us, we like to adopt ministries because we like having a place to do ministry. We like to have a, a Saturday project where once a month we do something for an hour somewhere so we can feel better about ourselves, and that's our ministry. What we miss when we do that is, is that the 8 to 5 Monday through Friday is when God, the place where God has called you, where he's rooting you, where you have the place of most potential impact. And so often we punt it because it's hard. Because it's, we'd have to be consistent and it's challenging. And remember, friends, at the heart of this gospel is that none of us is good enough, not even one of us. But his grace is more than enough. It's more than sufficient. Every week we close with the, the great doxology in chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. So what do you ask about your workplace? What do you think about your workplace? What are you begging God for at your workplace? Because if God is able to do far more abundantly than you ask or think, Take into consideration, he might want to radically transform that place, and he might want you to do it. And it's not just going to be because you start talking about Jesus more, but it absolutely has to include that. It's that people are going to watch how you live and how you interact with people. And you could look at me, you could send me an email, and you can say, Ben. That's going to be so hard. You have no idea who my boss is. And I would grant you, I probably don't. Although in some cases I might. But as we've walked through all of these passages, you have to appreciate that the ideal is lacking a lot. There are people who could stand before me and talk to me about marriage and say, you have no idea who my spouse is. There are people who could sit their kids before me and say, you have no idea who my kids are. And we miss the point of the passages that God is calling us, these are not conditional statements, to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ before people. 
before even our coworkers, and before our bosses. And he wants you to know this. Because if there are seven principles in five, six, and seven, he gives you some assurances in eight. He gives you some assurance in verse eight. It says this. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or he is free. What God wants you to know in the midst of this, Monday at 8.15, if you start trying to love your boss better, if you try to love your coworkers better, the assurance God wants you to have in the midst of all this is that he sees everything. He knows your heart. He knows your effort. And for you to till for the gospel in an extraordinarily hard field worships him. And he's keenly aware of it. And he's receiving your worship. And sometimes that's got to be good enough. God wants you to know that he knows that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. That your boss may never acknowledge your strengths, but Jesus will. Verse 8 is why our identity has to get nailed down. Because when our identity is Jesus Christ going to our workplace the idea that we'd be ridiculed is easier in Jesus. See, if we get shot down for trying to love our boss well, and it's just about me, I take it personally. But when I go into my workplace representing Jesus Christ, and I'm ridiculed for being the only guy that honors Christ in my office, see, that's about him. And now I can look at Jesus and say, boy, Jesus, you know what this is like. They crucified you. They tortured you. So we're brought into a deeper, a more renewed relationship with him because of it. There's seven principles and two assurances. God will see everything and God will acknowledge what you do. And some of us have the privilege to be a boss. Verse 9. Masters. To bring it to contemporary culture, bosses. Do the same to them. This is one of those extraordinary things if you actually appreciate that this was written to slaves. Um, Not only was this written, uh, it it gave a a significant amount of dignity to slaves, but the reality that it would challenge a, a master to love a slave in the same way is totally incredible in that culture. But to realize that the job of a boss is to honor his employees in the same way. That a boss is called to be respectful to his employees. A boss is called to be careful to not make mistakes with his employees. A boss is called to be sincere without hypocrisy for his employees. A boss is called to understand that his, his work, his service rendered unto the Lord before his employees. A boss is called to be consistent whether your employees are watching or not. 
A boss is called to have the proper motives. And a boss is called to have an attitude of goodwill for your employees. The challenge here is do the same. Because if an employee is challenged to live out Jesus to his boss, a boss is likewise challenged to live out Jesus to his employees. Do the same. Honor them. And stop your threatening. Threatening would be harsh intimidation, using um, bad motives, using challenges to them to try to get them to behave in a certain way. And then he gives an assurance, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. The assurance that God gives a boss, or in this case a master, is he doesn't care what role you sit in. He's everybody's master. The assurance that God gives is that not only does he not care, he has no partiality at all. God doesn't look at you with a job title. God doesn't look at you with, uh, there's not like a placard under your name in eternity. You don't show up as Joe Buck CFO. God doesn't care. There is no partiality within God. What God cares about in this context is that you honor your employees. That you understand first and foremost that you have a job. And it's to represent Jesus Christ to your employees. That if an employee wants to know what Jesus looks like, he should not go much further than to look at his Christian boss and to see Jesus lived out. This Ephesians 6, 5 through 9 challenges us to our understanding. It challenges us to to the idea that if we're going to live out the gospel in our lives, we don't just get to section it out to the, the times that are easy. We don't just get to have pet projects. We don't just get to have the one friend we meet once a, every three weeks with to try to share Jesus with, because that's enough. I'm doing my work. And we don't get to show up every three weeks at the project, fold something, put away some cans, and say, I'm doing ministry. That's my work. But the idea here is that we are called to live out Jesus Christ, his glory and his redemption before the entire world. That as the world drives by on a Sunday morning, they see your car parked here, they should understand that you are a follower of Jesus. And as a follower of Jesus, your life should be marked with the reality that his grace is sufficient and it covers all of your sin. It covers every last bit of it. And so when you walk in your marriage, your wife, your spouse should know that you're marked with Christ by how you respond to her. And your kids should know that you're marked with Christ because of how you respond to them. And your parents should know that you're marked with Christ because of how you respond to them. And the people at your workplace should know that you're marked with Christ because of how you respond to them. And your employees have got to know that you're marked with Christ because how you respond to them. And guys, there's not one of us here that's good enough to do all of it. It's not about that. It's not about us being good enough. It's about Jesus being sufficient. 
It's about the grace of God being sufficient that we could stop in a moment and pray, Lord, I've got the worst, hardest boss on the planet. Nobody knows what I'm going through, but help me love this guy well and trying. It's about stopping and taking a breath and saying, Lord, I don't know why I have to sit next to this guy at work. I don't know why I have to sit next to this girl at work. I don't know why I have to deal with these things, but help me to reflect you to them. It's to live in that constant tension of needing Jesus all the time. Because what worship is in the Old Testament is work. It's to appreciate that everything we do is rendering glory into God and to embrace that and to realize the very heart of this book, the Bible, and the very nature of this book of Ephesians is to drive home to us what a gospel life looks like, what it looks like for us to be well-rooted, and then to meddle into our lives and to challenge us to live it out all over the place. Over the last three weeks, if you felt overwhelmed and the reality of living out Jesus to your parents, to your kids, to your spouse, or to your boss seems overwhelming, we're going to close next week in 610 through 24. The beauty of that passage is to understand who we are in Jesus because it circles back around to nailing ourselves in Jesus Christ and to finding our identity there and how he will carry us through all of those things. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you that you are good, that you alone are good. Father, there are so many aspects of this that are hard and challenging. There's so many aspects of this, Father, that my flesh do not desire. But Father, you desire us to live out the gospel so that our response isn't just to raise a hand and come forward once or to be baptized, although those things are important. Your desire is that the gospel would so radically transform our lives that we emanate your glory everywhere we go that whether we buy something in a store or just go to work, people would see your grace in our lives. Thank you that Jesus Christ's work at the cross was sufficient for us. Thank you that the Holy Spirit is still at work in us. And thank you that you have never stopped moving and you've never stopped working. I pray for all of these people, Father, whenever they go to work. Because I know there are some that'll go tomorrow at eight and I know there are some that'll go at night and all over the map. I pray, Father, for the grace to live out the gospel. 
pray that you'd help us to love our coworkers. And I pray that you'd help us to love our bosses. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.